I'm Trevor Phillips, and this is the first in a series of conversations for the Integration Hub, which will focus on questions of racial and ethnic diversity and some of the most potent quarrels, I guess, that are going on in the public space. Myself and my colleague here are going to dwell today on probably the hot topic, white shift, which is Eric Kaufman's huge and, I would say, magisterial tome, attacks the question of what is happening amongst white people. And it's already caused a fair degree of controversy, to put it mildly. Uh, Eric, what's the reaction been like? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, I would say that the broad spectrum of public opinion, centre-right, centre-left, has been reasonably favourable, not without criticism, but generally quite favourable um, in terms of the broadsheet reaction in the UK and, and also the emerging response in the US where the book's just been released, I think has been pretty good. So I've been quite pleased with that. Now, there have been some quite strenuous objections on both the far right and the far left, I would, what I would consider the far left. Uh, and so I suppose we could, just very briefly, the far right doesn't like talk of large-scale race mixing and the emergence of a, of a sort of mixed-race beige kind of majority. On the far left, what you find is and this is, we saw this in the Guardian review by Kenan Malik, but especially in some of the academic reviews that are now just coming out that I've seen, um, you know, the criticism is very much coming from that critical race or liberal race dimension, which sees whiteness or white majorities as bound up with domination and hierarchy. So any attempt to sort of legitimize or normalize a white identity is essentially to normalize the battle battle days, battle past. Um, so that's kind of been a major theme that I'm, you know, I should be talking about power and not just about attachment and, and identity. Uh. Um, and my, my sort of, you know, and also there are some people who are saying that I'm too, you know, too tough on cosmopolitans and on the cultural left, that, that in a way these people are, are you know, they're responsible for many of the great advances in terms of racial equality and so on. And, and need to keep going in a way. Uh, so, so that's sort of just where the reactions are. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I'd say there is hysterical reaction on the very extremes of the left and the right. Uh, but I've been pretty pleased overall with the, the re response and the reaction. I, I wondered if part of the issue here is that, that you've got people who, of course, as you say, the extremes, who basically just don't want to have a conversation about any of this. But in the academic world, I wonder if part of the issue is that because, uh, you know, from my point of view, a lot of people in the academic world are people who would really love to be in politics but just haven't got the, the guts for it. And what they really want is for studies like yours to be uh, propagandist and advance a particular point of view. And the particular point of view that's popular amongst uh, academics on both sides of the Atlantic now is that essentially... Um, Race is simply a cipher for uh, the domination of by the powerful and the rich and all this kind of thing, and that all issues, all study to do with race should really be an explication uh, of the way that power is used to suppress people for, of color, women, people who are poor, and basically anybody who's not. I don't know, Donald Trump, I guess. Um, I, I wonder if the, the, some of the issue here wasn't so much to take issue 
with what you found, but simply the fact that you treat this, uh, treated this as a kind of act of scholarship rather than a piece of polemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I think what's, what happened is in academia is that this whole field of race and ethnic studies is a m ideological monoculture. It's not to say that everyone in there is an ideologue, but it's just to say that everyone in there is on board with the progressive you know, train, which means that you know, they're on board with terms like symbolic racism, where if you say U.S. is a colorblind society, that's a form of racism, or where if you talk about why African Americans are lagging behind on certain economic indicators, that, that the only explanation can be racial discrimination. So these are all, I think, baked into a worldview called, which is critical race theory, which is really quite, you know, it's not evidence-based in any, you know, it's, it's really taking top-line bivariate correlations of inequality and running with those. And that's very unquestioned. Um, even people who are fancy quantitative scholars will sort of name-check these these critical race writers in their introductions and, and more or less not challenge them theoretically. Because they <laughs> so, know if they do, they're just <laughs> right. going to get such a spanking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think there's really been a lack of any kind of um, critical appraisal really from pushing back against this narrative because there's such a sort of powerful conformity that goes on in this field. I mean, already, of course, social science academia is disproportionately going to be on the left uh, which is fine, but then within certain subfields, it's a real monoculture. Whereas in a, in, there are some subfields in, in politics which are less controversial, where I do think you do have some differing views. But, but in this field in particular, it's, it's been very difficult. So, of course, the, uh, I think academics who work in that field are, are going to be very, ups, you know, I won't say aghast, but they're going to push back pretty hard on, on a lot of the claims. Uh, it's just beginning because it's just starting to be reviewed in, in academic fields, but from what I've seen oh, already. Um, and uh, yeah, this gets to the, the heart of the issue, which is that the claim that white identity is a power construction, that, that, eth that majority ethnicity is all about trying to get more stuff and keep everybody else down. Uh, that's a view which I sort of oppose very strongly in the book. I argue that white identity, white majority identities are identities like any other ethnic identities, which are generally generated by people being attached to myths, symbols, memories, and so on, and which psychologists tell us people acquire these identities at quite an early age. Uh, and it's not all about domination, um, even though, of course, these identities can be abused for domi to, to dominate, but the, a lot of the literature shows us that in fact people who are more, you know, whites who are more attached to white identity are not um, more hostile to blacks, for example. Uh, I mean, that's clear in the 2016 American National Election Study data. It's been affirmed in many different data sets. Um, so again, this, this notion that simply enabling any expression of majority group ethnicity is going to lead to some kind of oppression, uh, I think is a flawed uh, argument. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that quite a lot of the criticism is just, I mean, it's banal, basically. I mean, it's, it's uh, what I've read of it, some of it doesn't even really, it feels like the, these are people who haven't actually read the book. Right. <laughs> and, and what they've really done, they've come with a prepackaged argument, which, as you say, is all about the idea that this is really just a kind of proxy argument for some slightly vulgar Marxist interpretation of the you know, landscape of 
Europe uh, and North America. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I really felt reading, for example, some of the pieces in the, in the Sunday newspapers was, as you say, book says, actually, whiteness isn't just a, a kind of idea that is defined purely by reference to the encounter between white Europeans and everybody else. But that actually there are, there's a network and a history of affinity and culture and all the rest of it that is in and of itself something. And we right. need to think about what that means. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been talking about majority ethnicity, which, so say in this country or in the U.S., was narrower than all whites. So it excluded Catholics and Jews at one point. Uh, and I'm arguing it will become broader than simply people who are phenotypically purely white. I mean, in the future, it will become this beige thing, which will in include people who are not white by physical appearance. So the, the point is really it's about the ethnicity, the myths of ancestry, um, the consciousness and the culture, etc. That that is, and people are attached to that. And that's really what's driving when we get into the book and the subject of the book. It's 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 sort of behind this populism that we see is a sort of insecure. Uh, white identity and, and a, a group which doesn't know where it's going and is sort of only being told you're the past and you're going to be replaced by this glorious multicultural future <laughs> and you should embrace that and celebrate it. And that's, unsurprisingly, that message is, is not going down that well with most of the, uh, the white majorities, although, of course, some people do embrace that. The 8% of, uh, in the U.S., the progressive activist 8% clearly are on board that train and, and perhaps a wider penumbra of of white liberals, but this is polarizing, I think, society. is th That analysis that sort of argues uh, the only way forward is really multiculturalism and, you know, relatively high immigration. I mean, that's causing this polarization. So that's kind of the first meaning of the term white shift in my book, mm. uh, which is this decline of white majorities across the West, and, and the U.S. will get there first around 2042. Um, but Britain and other Western European countries will get there at the end of this century. Uh, and what that means is this, this decline in the white majority means it's unsettling their sense of identity. So the issue of immigration is important because it's symbolic of that insecurity, not because of pressure on wages or public, public services, but very much that it, it makes people aware of the fragility of their identity in, in demographic cultural terms that they've always taken for granted. Um, and so this is primarily an identity-based and not a left-behind economic argument for the rise of populism. And then there's the white shift 2.0, if you like, which is this long-term argument that the whites will absorb through intermarriage lots of different uh, minority groups not all minorities. Of course, you will still have ethnic minorities, but the general direction of assimilation, I, I think, will be towards that majority group who will then, I think, select large, at least in Europe, they will select mainly that European heritage in terms of a myth of ancestry rather than the sort of multi, you know, the many different strands that have intermarried in. So that's kind of my the second Beijing-type component of the argument. It's a very interesting point. And I, yeah. I, 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 it's a one part of the book about which I, I think I've got some doubts. But let, let me right. come to that in a moment. Because um, when you, you and I were in this debate with Matthew Goodwin, Kent, and David Aronovich, and David had a go at the book on the grounds that the idea of white decline is false. Now, actually, I think I agree with you, but... Set out a bit what you mean by decline. 
Well, pretty simply just in terms of the demographic share of the population that identifies as a member of the ethnic majority, that ticks that box on the census. And, and that it's more than a box on the census. It also involves where you live, who you marry, as you say, what programs you watch on television. Yeah. You know, so there is a certain outlook and lifestyles that are associated with, with this uh, ethnic group that is, is declining, uh, particularly in the urban areas. So I think that's fairly, I think that's fairly unambiguous. Now, it's true that in the long term with assimilation, it could return. I'm arguing it will return. However, uh, well, yes, right. uh, but, but certainly in the medium term, if we're talking the next sort of up to 50 years oh, okay. from now, um, that decline is framing the politics. It's why the politics, I think, is shifting from uh, the economic left-right to the globalist-nationalist divide. Um, which is fundamentally, I think, about ethnicity, but, you know, I essentially about the changing ethnic character of nation states. Do you favor that the older, uh, you know, ethnic majority with minorities uh, matrix, or are you embracing the sort of multicultural, everyone's a minority vision, uh, which is being propounded, I think, by the um, what I call the left modernists, the, yeah. the, the sort of cultural left. And the argument there being that if you aren't on board with that, you are somehow reactionary and, and must be somehow, if not silenced or shut down, you, you know, certainly criticized, not shame necessarily, but, you know, the strong pressure within the high culture not to have, uh, not to question necessarily this trajectory. Yeah, but that's, yeah, a, uh, yeah I, I agree completely with that analysis. Yeah. And of course, what you call left modernist. You know, it's all part of a pro it's all part of a project, isn't it? I mean, having failed, I'm afraid with the classic working class, the the, the new theory is that the way you challenge uh, the uh, establishment is by essentially constructing a vision of society in which there are insurgent minorities and the number of them multiply and they become more and more and that's how you break everything down and uh, all that right, complete nonsense right. but but what i think is very interesting about what you're saying is that there is potentially a, a contradiction going on here isn't there that actually there is white decline in the demographic sense that you outline in just sheer numbers and proportion of the population. But at the same time, there are people who are becoming part of what will become a sort of new whiteness, if I can put it right. that way. So there are two things going on which, in some senses, are completely at odds with each other. Fewer white people, but actually more of the people who are here are getting defined as white. Yes, so, right. I mean, these things often happen in a nonlinear way. So at some point in the future, those people who are part white will sort of suddenly find themselves in the tent. But I think that's, if we look historically, that tends to happen in these cascades. So if you look at the U.S., the Catholics and Jews who are outside the tent, um, but were acculturating and assimilating culturally, but still Catholics were marrying Catholics. I mean, across ethnic lines, Italians and Irish, yeah, yeah. you know, producing people like Robert De Niro. But, um, but they were in their Catholic melting pot, and the Jews had theirs. And it was only really post-1970 that you had this breaching of that boundary. And then it happens very quickly, um, sort of almost in the space of 20 years. But for a long time, say, between the 19, oh, 1910s and 1960s, there was cultural assimilation but without the large-scale intermarriage that, that, and the large-scale identity shift, 
and, and then it suddenly happens quickly. So I think it's that's probably where we're headed in terms of uh. this white expansion, so that the whites will decline until their boundaries are rethought or redefined. And that happens in a sort of peer-to-peer -peer social. It's not really a top-down process. It's sort of suddenly people's understandings shift in a very short space of time. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that's what I would, how I would pr predict it to happen. So a decline in what we would think of as the white population, yeah, right. and then some event or some incident or some moment happens where actually it, it goes up again, but because who we think of as white becomes yeah. different. In a sense, I suppose it's interesting, actually. You're right about uh, the United States. After uh, yeah. Kennedy becomes president, Catholics suddenly become... Right. Well, a good, a good barometer of that is 86% is, is of Catholics voted for Kennedy in 1960. And by the time you get to John Kerry, who's the next Catholic, I think it was in the, in the mid-2000s, mm. um, the Catholic vote was completely split. And it didn't matter that he was a Catholic at all. Uh, now that's, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I think the change has happened in the sort of 70s, 80s. Um, so I think it's just one of these, and it's not, I don't think, any crystallizing event. I don't think the election of Kennedy was necessarily the key thing as much as it's a bit like um, gay marriage. You know, there's sort of the toleration and then more people are tolerant. And so then people realize, oh, okay, maybe that's the way to go. And then you get a, a self-fulfilling cascading effect and then s the thing changes very quickly and, uh, and so that's sort of how I'd envision it happening not necessarily a singular event. The other thing which I, I was very um, struck by in the book is what you might call white anxiety problem that is to say the movements that we're seeing now populism in the United States populism on the European continent are to some extent driven by anxiety, some of which is to do with this demographic trend, some of which I think is to do with changes in the economy, which, if you hear people talk about them, are all about, you know, the loss of jobs. But I think, actually, aren't, when we think about the impact of, for example, the loss of steel industry, closure of mines, actually, I think we don't address enough the cultural impact these kinds of losses. So it's the same is true in the United States. I mean, actually, it's not just there are jobs going, but there is a whole way of life which is disappearing. And the reason I, I'm asking about this is that I wonder, it's a question that I've never really been able to answer for myself, I'm not sure anybody really gets, is what comes first? Is the sense of anxiety about change what comes first? And then white anxiety follows that because everybody looks around and says, oh, the people who are, who are being affected by this kind of change are all like me. They're all white. Or is it the other way that actually people who already have this common identity are looking around and thinking, hang on, we're, you know, we're becoming a minority. There are people who are coming. They've got different ways. They look different and so on. And by the way, at the same time, all these other things are happening to us, the white tribe. So, do you see what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah. What, what, what do you think is coming first? Well, my, I, I have a very sort of basic take on this, which is that I actually don't think these economic changes matter much. Now, that's, some people, I mean, that's heretical. Wow. Okay. There's <laughs> heretical for some people, but, I mean, you can, if you look back, you know, look at the United States, the last major wave of immigration restrictionist politics in the 1920s, boom times, etc. Even in Britain with Powellism in the 60s, I mean, you wouldn't have said that, uh, you know, you can always point to this deindustrialization that has been occurring in fits and starts even in Britain since the 20s in some cases but you know certainly over decades and decades and decades and and, and I'm just not sure that matters 
and it's not just because of history, but if you look at the data, which I, I do in, a, in the book, the differences based on where you live, rural, urban, income levels, whether you're employed or not, those are not very important. They really don't correlate very well with populist right voting. Really? No, and so mm. London, I, you know, I can say, if you take the white working class of London. I don't know what I'm saying, really. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's there in the book. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, so this, London is as, as much of a leave voting area when you just look at its white working class population as anywhere else in England, as these, you know, these towns that who, who are, which are deindustrializing. Now, granted, there's some deindustrialization in London too, but I think that if you look at the variables which correlate, I mean, the Trump vote, there is no income effect at all. So poor whites well, and rich whites vote for Trump. Not the very richest, but essentially income broadly doesn't correlate with voting for Trump amongst whites. In Britain, there's a small effect for Brexit. But generally, I think this is a straightforwardly cultural, ethno-demographic, uh, political demography phenomenon that can be compared to even other parts of the world where we see these conflicts, Ivory Coast, where there's been an increase over decades in the Muslim share of the population. We, that's an example where we've seen, even in, okay, it's a slightly different situation, but you know, Chinese moving into places like Tibet and Western Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs live, you know, mm. these sorts of uh, ethno-demographic shifts are very often associated. I mean, it's, it's the exception when they're not associated with some sort of ethnic, not necessarily violent conflict, but certainly ethnic unease and anxiety. So I just think it's it's a bit like when the Irish Catholics came to the central belt of Scotland and you had populist Protestant parties getting a third of the Protestant vote. It's the same kind of, I think it's very same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's very much down to this ethno-demographic ethno shifting. It may be happening at a time when the economy is just higher inequality and so on. I'm just not convinced that's telling us much in terms of the picture. But you know, there's, uh, I mean, there's tremendous resistance to this, this idea. I, I have a theory about, <laughs> about this, which I'm going to try out on you. Our opinion formers, you know, right. people who write clever columns and leaders in the newspapers and who appear on telly and so on, who aren't me and you, um, <laughs> generally speaking, resist this idea which you're essentially promulgating, which, you know, I'm an adherent to, which is that the social cleavages that really matter in our society now more closely correspond to ethnic and religious and cultural divisions and that the political architecture is in deep trouble because certainly in this country the political architecture does not reflect where the real divisions are. In America Donald Trump's already reshaped the Republican Party to reflect exactly this kind of change so the Republican Party is now kind of it is basically a white nationalist party and it's unashamed about that. Democrats have all sorts of trouble because they don't quite know where they want to be. Do they want to try and fight on that new ground? Or do they try to continue to push what you would call the sort of multiculturalist orthodoxy and you know, create this kind of rainbow tribe party? Now, I think that what Vernon Bogdaner calls exam-passing classes in this country have a lot of trouble with this because in this country, those exam-passing classes basically think it's kind of old-fashioned and it's wrong to base anything on these ties of affinity that actually that's somehow disreputable, bordering on the automatically racist. So that the, the sense that we have all the time when you read the, what the opinion formers write and hear what they say is that the one thing you may not accept <laughs> is the idea that people may be motivated 
by these ties of affinity. And one of the reasons I, uh, I think this is important is I think most of the people in that class who might have been born Catholics or Jews or indeed people of colour are generally speaking people who think they've left all that behind. They have cast it off, and it's a kind of old superstition that belonged to their parents and their grandparents, who they still love, but who they think are basically, they brought the shtetl with them, or they (laughs) brought the the village with them. And actually what we need to do is to get rid of all of that. I just have a suspicion that there's a sort of conversation that goes on amongst clever people in which all of the things that, genuinely speaking, motivate most people white or not white, are now regarded as a relics of something that we should have left behind because they belong to the old country or the old traditions. That's re- I mean, that's really interesting because it gets to, I mean, what David uh, Goodhart calls the somewhere-anywhere divide. Yep. And, and what in my book I trace very much to, to the psychological divide between people who are essentially attached to, you know, difference and change, at which tend to be these exam-passing classes. Although I think there's people in the exam passing classes who are actually quite attached to tradition and conservatism and order. So there's a big divide there. So I think it's a psychological and and the work of Karen Stenner and uh, Feldman and some of these others on authoritarianism very much shows that these are deep-seated between a third and a half heritable dispositions. I mean, Jonathan Haidt shows people, you know, conservatives like dots on a screen moving in lines and and liberals like them sort of in, in, in more messy patterns. So, so it's kind of a, a deep psychological basis to this, and, and which does correlate with education. And so I think the, the, the highly educated tend to be these people high in openness who are, in terms of their psychological disposition, selecting into these roles. So they don't understand people who are attached to, you know, traditions wanting the present to be like the past and so on. Uh, so you're absolutely right there. The one thing I would say is there is a bit of a, a double standard in the sense that particularly on the multicultural left there's a desire for ethnic minorities to be conservative in terms of preserving and identifying with their ancestral homelands and cultures and the opposite for ethnic majorities. They Yes, they should slough off and escape, <laughs> but the minorities should yeah, get we, in touch with should, their roots. Right. Yeah, we, we should stick with the, old, right. with the folk history and, right. and yeah, dress and up. And that goes back a long way. It goes back really to the first multicultural <laughs> theorists in, in the 1910s who, ha- who had this distinction. So the way they got over that contradiction, which is a contradiction, I mean, between attachment to roots and, and sloughing off the roots is okay. Majority powerful groups slough off the roots and minorities stick to it, partly so that provides color for us cosmopolitans to savor. Uh, it also, yeah. it also so. works with the uh, narrative that says Europeans are progressive, you know, they understand science, they understand progress, whereas these other people, charming though they are, they are rooted in kind of unmoving and unchanging view of the world which revolves around star patterns and, right. n- and all kinds of nonsense, you know, not to shift too far off the book. But one of the things that's, that has struck me really forcibly is that this is BAFTA and Oscars season. One of the things that people are talking about a, a lot is the success of Black Panther, one of the biggest movies actually in history now. And everybody sort of greeted this. As, it's, it's a breakthrough thing. Now, I think that's true, actually, in various ways. But the one thing I haven't seen people saying is that this movie is wildly popular amongst black audiences in the United States and also here and also in Africa. But its message, it's nakedly unintegrationist. The whole point about Wakanda is it's run by Africans. And the whole thing about it is can you keep...
keep out the whites from polluting what we have built in Africa. You know, the, the, the great line that black audiences respond to in this movie is when Letitia Wright, the Panther's sister, who's the clever scientist in the movie, kind of revives Martin Freeman, who's been half killed, and saves his life. And Martin Freeman gets up, wakes up from a coma, and she turns to him and she says to him, hello, colonizer. You know, the, the, and black audiences love this. The point I'm making here really is that the demonstration of the success and popularity of this movie amongst black audiences is actually, in a way, exactly the corollary of what you're saying, that for black audiences, it's an announcement or a re-announcement of that affinity. It's exactly the opposite to the Martin Luther King integrationist message. It says the future for us is to be separate, powerful, you know, we can be nice to anybody we like, we can bring them back to life, but they need to understand we're going to be separate. And the reason I raise this is that I think actually for people who are, you know, they're critical race theory, but actually what they really mean is we're anti-racist with a doctorate, they seem completely oblivious to the fact that what you've been writing about, which is the reassertion of these historic identities, is actually where the world is, not where they want it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, because I think, as you were talking, I mean, the point that I make is a lot of this attachment is, to, yeah, exactly, to history and, and to group, not, not sort of blindingly, unthinkingly, you know, this distinction between a common enemy and a common humanity version of identity that Jonathan Haidt makes is that you can have a version of identity that doesn't see everybody else as the enemy. It yeah. doesn't depend on everyone else as being an enemy. And I think this is sort of, I think, what, what, uh, what this movie's talking about. And that the appeal of identity and ethnicity is not dependent on either dominating or being dominated. Because I think a lot of the critical race theory kind of suggests that, well, there is a black identity because they were dominated, but of course they're never. You're never yeah, going to say we were, once we, the domination lifts, so they'll just drop their identity. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, it's, we it's, were we were never black before we were colonized. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've never thought about it that yeah, way, but yeah. that's a very because because. Because my argument is that the attachments are to symbols, you know, the Harlem Renaissance and the blues yeah. and jazz and these sorts of AME Zion Church. If you're talking about African Americans, that gives the power or the that's what people are attached to. This idea of of this as a vehicle for resistance, and that's the only reason that you are black. I mean, you know, this is sort of the the social constructionist version of it. I just think it's flawed, and I just don't think if you did the psychological research that you could find a strong basis for that. It's just not there. That's very interesting. I, I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting proposition to explore, that people only became black and white when they encountered each other. And I think that there are people who genuinely believe that, that, that before that, none of this meant anything. But um, I don't believe that. But it, it does have a really... I think it's got a really practical effect. As you know, one of my current and frankly abiding obsessions has been the question of how we deal with the rising levels of violence in British cities, which we now kind of label under the title knife crime. And it, it's, it's reasonable. You know, the numbers have gone up. There are fatalities. There are hundreds and hundreds of kids going into hospitals with knife wounds who don't die, but... This is, this is a serious thing. And the reason I fret about this, I think is probably the right way to put it, is that I look every day now, because I've got, you know, you get obsessive about these things. Newspapers, and I listen to radio, 
and I watch the report on television. Statistically, there is actually no question where this is predominant. The, the predominant group of people who are perpetrating knife crime and also being victims of knife crime are subsections of black communities, particularly those who come from parts of Africa. Now slightly less amongst African Caribbeans, but it's very specific. The one thing that you... I mean, and there's lots and lots of coverage of this. I just judged the Daily News Programme of the Year Award for the Royal Television Society. And there are, amongst the entries, there are dozens of items on knife crime. The one thing that you will never hear anybody say is that this is largely conducted by black children, because that's really who it is, and it's against black children. There are parallels made, for example, with knife crime in Glasgow, completely unjustified, because actually the knife crime that we're concerned about now, not people tumbling out of a pub and being angry with each other. These are assassinations. These are people being sent to kill people. It's a very different thing. But what nobody will say is that there is a racial component here, which probably we don't quite understand, and we, but we need to understand. And we can't understand it un- unless we acknowledge it. Where I'm getting to is that because we've now got into this place, which the reaction to your book was part of, where the last thing anybody can say is that there is a thing that is associated with being white or being black, we cannot actually deal with this phenomenon. So we end up with a situation where, as I say, I listen and watch the BBC particularly on this, and no matter what they do, they will not explicitly say this is about black communities. Yet, actually, you'll find two things that are really unusual about the reporting of this issue. More often than not, the person who's reporting it will be a black journalist. Why? If it's nothing to do with that. And secondly, the conversation around it is epitomised by a piece I listened to on the Today programme on Radio 4 last week, in which it was the item reported that there had been the highest number of stab wounds in London hospitals. It was really charting this phenomenon. Their interviewees were a, you know, no doubt competent, capable, concerned, nice white lady doctor and a black guy who had himself been a knife carrier and a supplier of knives. Nobody actually said he was black, but his name was Olu. He came from Brixton, we were told. He had worked with gangs, and frankly, unless you are completely been asleep for the last 35 years, you could tell he was black, even though it's on the radio. But the thing that absolutely struck me was that in 10 minutes of this reporting, the BBC resolutely refused to mention race. And my point here is, in a way... Perhaps part of the reaction to your thesis, put crudely, that race matters for everybody and what race you are matters for you as an individual, is now creating a situation where we can't actually tackle public policy problems. Yeah, I think you're right. So there is sort of this view, there's this sort of view that the way the media talks about these subjects... um, will have this mysterious, shadowy influence on everybody else and turn them into raging racists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or, yeah. You know, that, that's sort of main... There's a theory called mainstreaming or normalizing, which is 
uh, often the way this is talked about that if, if, if you, you know, it's a bit like if you have a conversation with Steve Bannon, then everybody's going to go out and, and be like Steve Bannon. I mean, there's no evidence <laughs> for any of this. None of this is sort of evidence based. It's all, you know, I, I would call it conspiracy theory based. Uh, and this is this is a version of the same thing that somehow if you if you identify the perpetrator as black, everyone will start hating on black people, uh, as if you know they can't make these distinctions properly. But yeah, it does get in the way. I think of how you address it because if the way to address it is to engage you know, black Pentecostal preachers, for example, to 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 try and 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 kind of work on the young people, I mean that would maybe be a much more effective strategy than coming up with some broad based agent government agency based approach you know that is that is not interfacing with these institutions um, so I agree you know it seems to me a, a sort of very counterproductive uh, way of going about it you you know you have to identify what is the problem and, and yeah and, and if it is an honor you know if it is a particular black male honor culture you know this is where some of the, the, the African-American writers like Coleman Hughes and Glenn Lowry and mm, uh, Thomas mm. Sowell, and, and that's what they're saying, that you know, just trying to pretend that this is a white-on-black problem, a majority-minority problem, all, all the attention that, say, a, a police shooting will get versus blacks shooting blacks, that doesn't make the paper, nobody cares, when actually that's the much more serious problem that should be addressed. Mm needs to be, you know, the resources need to be going, the attention needs to be going. If you really care about black lives, you know, white cops shooting a black, which is actually, you know, black police are, are shooting blacks yep. at a, as or higher rate. The, the bigger issue, the, pr the proper issue of where there should be more media attention and policy attention, if you really want to improve black lives, is how do you intervene to address this honor culture, um, which is behind a lot of this gang, and I'm not saying there's no socioeconomic input, but clearly the, you know, Vietnamese and Chinese immigrants are not are not doing this, which is, I mean, taking it in the American context. So there, you know, again, Coleman Hughes and these people are saying, you know, we have to actually be realistic about the causes here. Indeed, and uh, mm. I think all, what this all says to us is that things that really matter are being avoided because if I can you know, the opinion-performing classes for, in my view, their own reasons, want the world to be a particular way that suits them. But unfortunately for them, us, <laughs> part of that class, that isn't the way the world is. And the task for us is to try to think through, can we change things in a way that starts to deal with those? Now, I mean, uh, some of this... We've been talking as though this is just a North America, UK issue. I have just come back from a conversation in Austria with people from right round the continent, and particularly the Austrians and the Germans, because of the 2015 Germans took in what 1.2 million refugees, mainly from Africa and from Middle East and so on and now thinking really hard about these issues of integration. The Germans are spending 16 billion euros on integration programs. This is the federal government. I don't know what the provincial governments are spending. Uh, and in the conversation that we're having, you know, it's a private conversation, a lot of people around the table, and so I can't say who asked this question, <laughs> but somebody said to one of the German government representatives, because it's mostly it was mostly 
senior civil servants and some, some politicians around the table. Somebody said, do you talk to people about how much money you're spending on integration programmes? And the senior, or one of the senior German people said, effectively, well, we don't think it would help people to understand <laughs> if we told them we were spending 16 billion euros. But actually, nobody minds because they think these things are so important. And one of the things they think is so important is, for example, dealing with the fact that a lot of the refugees who come are dealing with post-traumatic stress. The point about this is that I, I come away from that kind of conversation thinking two things. One is that actually we have got a big problem that's going to get bigger because, you know, some of these issues are eternal. Religious division, conflict over resources, water and so on. That's going to drive a lot of people in the rest of the century to Europe, from, particularly from Africa and the Middle East, uh, um, with bringing the, those conflicts with them. And that's bad. But on the other hand, actually, the thing that I was very struck by, particularly for the Germans and the Austrians, is the extent to which they were confident that people in both those countries got that there were going to be these conflicts and were prepared to spend resources to ease their way into this new future. I mean, I, 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 was, I was quite surprised by this because, you know, we tend to think when we talk about integration and you know, race, there's bad guys who just don't like non-white people, and then there's good guys like us who are kind of happy, clappy, <laughs> love everybody. But actually, I got the sense that there's much, in, on the continent, there's much more of an open-mindedness about the way the world is going, and that the, the task is not keep them out, but the task is how do we manage this process in a way, which comes back to the point that you're trying to make, which is we need to understand that people are different, including what we think of as right now, the majority, that it has its own way of being. And the answer here is to, first of all, map those in a sensible way and then work out how you negotiate differences between these different groups and traditions. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's obviously, you know, if you look at the politics of Germany and Austria and the success of both the AFD and the Freedom Party, Freedom Party almost winning the presidency there, um, it would suggest... That, you know, even if that is the discussion being held in the room, clearly there are a lot of people who are in, concerned about rates of, in, of, of immigration as well. Maybe not necessarily reflected in that discussion. But, yeah, I mean, one of the things is, I, I, you will know more about this than me, is that it, it's not clear to me that the integration literature gives us any clear pointers as to how necessarily to deal with this. Because in a way... There's an, a downside and an upside for groups clustering together. They actually have better well-being outcomes in some ways clustering together. It may impair their social capital in terms of getting employment in, in some other cases, but we still don't have a clear picture of what is the right policy. And even with terrorism, we know, I mean, the evidence that I've seen wouldn't suggest that, say, a Muslim living in a heavily Muslim area is more likely to be engaged in jihadism than a Muslim living in a less Muslim area. So, uh, you know, this is really a, a field without, in my view, clear 
policy guidelines, and, and so I don't, I mean, spending 16 billion, I mean, I don't know what they're spending it on. I mean, English language, yes, maybe. Uh, English language, uh, oh, housing. Native language. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, German, yeah. Yes. Uh, housing, uh, it, it adds it's, up. But, but I think the point you make is a very, very important one, because one of the extremely high-placed Germans in the room raised exactly this point. She said, why do we keep saying, there's a conversation about segregation that started, she said, why do we keep saying that segregation is in and of itself a bad thing? Number one, I can't see anybody who's been able to prevent it. Singapore, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, yeah. Do we want to go no, there? No. No. Uh, number two, doesn't it make it potentially easier for us to deal with this kind of diversity? Because we can actually provide services for people that we can actually work with the grain rather than against the grain. And there may be things that we can't then solve about what are the rules within these quote-unquote clusters or ghetto mm -hmm. communities, depending which side of the coin you look at. But why do we automatically assume that it must be an object of policy to integrate people spatially? And is that the most important thing? Because actually there are social issues of integration that may be more significant in the future rather than where people live. Yeah, I mean, and I think also the evidence we have, I mean, certainly that I'm more familiar with the data in here in North America, but um, immigrant groups who cluster initially have shown a, a spreading out. You know, the Bangladeshis in Tower Hamlets are moving into Red Bridge and, and other yeah. areas. Um, and, and, I, and one of the things I point out really, in, in, and both in the response to the Casey review here in the UK, is the, that it may be that the white response to this migration is the bigger driver of segregation. That is, minorities may be willing to move out, then they're increasingly creating these super diverse areas uh, like, um, I don't know, Bronx in New York or Queens or, or, or maybe here, Newark. Yeah. Um, so these super diverse areas, that's where all the growth is, uh, not in the one-group ghettos. I mean, it, it, the groups are moving out of those ghettos, so, but actually the white British or the white Americans are leaving these super diverse areas and moving towards their own. So actually, that is maybe creating this kind of two-nation-style geography of these super diverse suburbs uh, and then these very white exurbs and countryside, and, and that they're voting different ways. And, and so actually, the sort of white avoidance part of the equation is, is sorely neglected, but may actually be the more important driver. Um, so I'm not convinced that necessarily these Muslim groups won't mix over time, spread out as they get the means. I'm not sure they're as anti-integration naturally, because the studies, the show card studies we have from the U.S., from the Netherlands, Britain, would suggest whites have the most exclusive neighborhood preferences. They prefer neighborhoods 70% white or so, whereas minority groups, it's more like 50. But this has received almost no attention, yeah. but may, I think, will become a bigger issue. I want to go back to the Muslim thing in a second, yeah, sure. but, but I, here's one of the issues that came up in the conversation that uh, we were having across the, the, the table about Europe itself, and some of the Americans and even the Canadians, who... <laughs> oh, they are, were there. Oh, no. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. We had everybody in the room. Uh, the Canadians, uh, I spend most of these meetings uh, teasing the Canadians for being <laughs> perfect. But even the Canadians are slightly losing their confidence. And one of the reasons that 
I think everybody is losing their confidence is it's a spatial one. You're completely right. Whites move, as you say, to the exurbs, rural areas, stable. There are mixed inner-city areas, some of which are gentrified with million-pound apartments and living two streets from their servants, basically. Um, And oddly enough, there's no big problem there because these people don't see each other very much. Where I think there are issues, particularly issues for the public authorities, are in the places where, exactly as you say, there's movement and there's transience and there's churn. And that's a kind of general migrant settled issue and then you put on top of that the arrival of say refugees or temporary workers I wonder if one of the things we're missing when we're thinking about this integration problem is that I agree with you that you know the actions of whites are important but maybe another way of thinking about what the problem we have to deal with is the degree of churn we know that the populist vote is more is, is strongly driven by rates of change Right in the composition of the population. And I, I wonder if there's a sort of, um, if you like, a second-order derivative here, which is not just the rate of change, but the continuing rate of change, the, if you were to take an average length of tenure. Right. So Newham, where a third of the population turns over every five years. I exactly. Think. So, so that is, that is a so, I think that's associated with low social cohesion, ca- social yeah. capital. Um, I'm not persuaded that it's pers- uh, connected to the populist right voting. I mean, people who move, for example, are less likely to vote populist right. Part- I mean, there's actually a certain liberalizing effect of moving. Um, okay. But I think that it is associated with a certain disorder uh, within you know, that population that's transient. You, you may get more. I think I saw a paper that showed more rioters in the London riots coming from those kinds of areas. Um, mm. So I think you you probably have a point there, uh, you know. But how I think the populist right vote is very much about that rate of ethnic change, and one of the things we see, for example, in refugee dispersal, you know, when there's an attempt to distribute refugees, mm-hmm. I think that's a bad idea. Um, any area areas with that are recip- receiving refugee dispersal tends to have tend to have higher populist right support because they're generally relatively homogenous. They're not, they don't have a history of being very diverse. And, and just that attempt, it may make sense on a purely bureaucratic level to kind of spread groups out across the country so no one place takes more of the burden. But I think that's actually wrong-headed because you're sending people to places which don't have that experience. It's almost better to let them organically settle in areas where they're already concentrated. I don't think that's the end of the world, actually. I think that's probably better. It, uh, yeah. It's a very good point, actually, and it, it's something that came came up when I was talking to my right. new best friends in Austria, that actually what they're discovering is that they disperse people into new refugees, into the Tyrol, for example, right. into the mountains. And what they then discover, of course, is after six months they find their way to Vienna, even though, actually, unemployment is higher in Vienna, so it's harder to get, theoretically harder to get a job, though, in fact... I suspect in the places that the new refugees would find work, there's a demand and so on. But the point is that the idea that dispersal will reduce the sense of friction and anxiety actually is turning out not to be true at all. In fact, it makes it worse I think because that's these right. people move in and then they move out very fast. 
Yeah, or, or, or even if they're not able, if they don't have the means, if they're in government housing and they're forced to be somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think that sort of riles up the, the local population, which is, I mean, it's just because there's, you know, it's what you're used to. And I think yeah. part of this is it's just a big change in some of these homogenous areas. It's better, perhaps, for them to begin in the diverse areas that already have that experience, and then you can have a gradual moving out. Um, I think that's, I'm, I'm kind of more of the view that this organic development is better. Um, you know, of course, that can go too far when you have segregated totally yeah. communities like in northern England. But in general, I would be against these sort of artificial attempts to, I, I mean, in Canada, you have this phenomenon of people being sent out to Newfoundland, and then yep. after a few years, they or, or even come Quebec, to Calgary. Yeah, even Quebec, they all wind up in <laughs> Toronto and Vancouver. The, 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 yeah, so, so, but if they're stuck in these places, I think that's not good either. Um, let's just talk about what you might call the third rail issue, Muslims. Right. Okay. okay. Now, I suppose the question that everybody is still slightly trying to avoid is the issue of whether what we're dealing with here is a rise in populations from countries which are basically Muslim, Pakistani, Bangladesh, in France, North, North Africa, and so on, and that the issues there are ones to do with national origin and culture, and that being Muslim has nothing really very much to do with it, or whether what we're talking about is people who come from a global tradition which is not incompatible but not easily reconcilable with the sort of sets of traditions and values that you outline in White Shift. Now, I, as you know, worry about this forever and ever. And the thing that you're not really supposed to say is that the second is true, that actually what we're really dealing with here is not a sort of problem of national origins because in Pakistan they eat this or that. Right, right. But what you are really dealing with is not a clash of civilizations, but some sets of values which are not the same as those held by the group that you chart in White Shift, i.e. historically white European, kind of the Anglo-Saxon world at its heart. In this country, in the UK, actually, I think it's exacerbated by the fact that we have quite large subcontinental populations that are reproducing the first generation because people mm. bring wives and husbands and so on. And that is uh, emphasized by their relative segregation. And I wonder if the truth is that we are slowly realizing that we're kind of kidding ourselves, that somehow this will all kind of go away with time. Because if that is not true, then there's an element of what you say in your book, which is that we are going to sort of head towards a gradual convergence, which can't be true. Right. Um, so the Muslim question, yeah, I, I mean, I do, do talk about it a bit in the book, and I think there are some interesting wrinkles. So, so it's, first of all, it is worth talking about the projections that for Britain and places, certain countries, Britain, Sweden, but essentially the Pew projections out to 2060, we're talking about Britain having sort of almost 16, 17 percent of the population being Muslim as opposed to whatever it is, five or six. Mm. You know, that is going to be a significant change in, and would suggest that we won't be talking about polls in, in 2050. 
The other thing, though, in the book that I look at is intermarriage. And it's true that in France, you've got almost a half, a 50, 40, 50% outmarriage amongst Moroccan and Algerian. So they are actually outmarrying with the French population at a relatively high rate. And one of the things... That's I, part of a long history, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of a long history, and, and that's much lower here. And it's lower in the Netherlands. And so it depends where, which country. We don't yet know what's going to happen in the Nordic countries where they have Kurds, Somalis, and all these different groups, because there isn't a lot of inter-ethnic marriage, even between Muslim ethnic groups. It's very low. Will they prefer to marry out in, this, in the Northern countries? There could be more outmarriage. To me, outmarriage is going to be the key route towards their assimilation because of all the prescriptions uh, you know the value there is the value clash and you know there's the apostasy thing and there are all kinds of issues so I mean one of the things you see in these I've looked at this in the census data here because I can get hold of it is that the people who said they were Muslim in 2001 and who now say they are no religion so the sort of Muslim secularization which you see in France by the way but that occurs largely amongst people who are of mixed sort of white and, say, South Asian background who have a Muslim. Really? So I didn't that, know about yeah. that. What, what's, the, what's the size of that shift, roughly? Well, I mean, there's roughly, four, there's roughly four times as many people moving in that direction as moving from no religion to being Muslim. You know, if you take the total, it's maybe a couple percentage points in, in okay. a 10 year. F so it's very small. Okay. So it's, it's, it's not going to do the trick if you like. Uh, what I would say is that, though, the... There is less opposition to intermarriage, it seems to me, than conversion. So, I mean, it's going to be very hard for a Muslim to convert to no religion, let's say, from being Muslim. But I think the intermarriage route amongst those groups that are more open to it, which is less so Britain, where the South Asians have a very low outmarriage. But again, it takes time. time. It takes like 30, 40, 50 years. Suddenly, I think in France, you'll get a period where, you know, suddenly the, 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 it'll seem like the Muslim share suddenly drops in some way because of all this intermarriage. But it, it, these, these things, they start very slow and they, they rise kind of logarithmically. And then, so it's not a problem that will be rectified anytime soon. But of course, in Britain, there's this issue of the low intermarriage rate. But I think that is, to me, that's the only way I see this ultimately, because you're right, there is a, a clash of values. It's not to say there aren't people who are anti-gay or, or, or anti-Semitic in other communities. But as, as you've pointed out in, from the survey data, the ICM data showed that it was simply much higher, uh, at least in Britain. I mean, the U.S., actually, the American Muslims seem to be less anti-gay than, than the, say, the evangelicals. So it depends which, which country. But, yeah, it's going to be, this is going to be the challenge that Europe faces between now and 2050. And I think Britain is going to be one of the countries that faces it. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Because in the United States, what is interesting is that Muslims can assimilate culturally. You know, even the new Muslim congresswoman, when I watch her on TV, actually what I see more than anything else is a kind of is Midwestern American right. <laughs> before I think of her as a Muslim. So in a sense, in America, in Dearborn, Michigan, or wherever it might be, the Muslims you will meet there, let's leave aside the, the black Muslims, the Muslims you'll meet there feel more than anything else like Americans. And this other thing is well, part of it. Well, this has changed a bit. I mean, the, I would say since... Well, not just 9-11, but, but say in recent years, and certainly since Trump. But I mean, so is it like, but, but it's, yeah, there, there, there's a bit of a change. I agree. There's a, there's, but uh, there's a little, but in, in and of themselves. Whereas here, 
actually, I think we're in a rather different place that actually, for a significant part of our Asian minority population, being a Muslim still feels like it's carrying a weight that isn't quite the same as it would be in the United States, that actually this sense of belonging, in the same way as go back to the beginning of our discussion, the sense of belonging to being a white tribe is really very strong. It's a kind of paradox, though here there might be less into, there might be a little bit more intermarriage even than in the United States. There's still a kind of there's still a sort of unresolved question about how we reconcile the sets of values associated with being part of the Muslim community with uh, the sets of values that have traditionally belonged to the white tribe. And this is not, you know, the minute you say this, everybody goes, oh, this is Islamophobic. You're, you're saying that Muslims can't be British. Actually, my point is exactly the reverse. My point is that we have to find a way of allowing people to be what they are and a, have, create a kind of capacious, a more capacious identity that accommodates that, than rather than constantly sort of kidding ourselves that somehow, somewhere, it's all going to get itself sorted out. Yeah, I, I agree. I, that's why I favor these sort of these two layers. One is the nation-state layer, which is, uh, which I, which I, I use this term multivocalism, which is that you yeah. know every group they'll have their identity, but they also can have their national identity as well. But the content of the, say, Pakistani Muslims' British identity will look different than the content. I mean, the symbols, the things they're attached to, than they, the white Britain in, in rural Cumbria. And in fact, we, we know this from the BBC English, Englishness survey that attachment to British history and landscape is certainly stronger for English identifiers who are white British than English identifiers who are, say, minority. Uh, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So I think you can have this sort of bespoke, kind of tailor-made, uh, personalized Britishness, which is somewhat a, an emergent thing from below, not an officially decreed British values six-point uh, hymn sheet. So I'm very much against that um, type of top-down national identity. But at the same time, you also have this kind of majority blurry at the edges melting pot, which is the majority ethnic group, which is absorbing different uh, groups, which is something separate from that nation-state identity, which I agree with you needs to be capacious. So you can cheer for the Indian cricket team, and, and, and but, but you might cheer for the, for the English football team. So, so that's fine. I mean, my, but... Um, Actually, the, yeah, okay. the one that, certainly, I, I, I'm yeah. with you on that. And I, I was thinking, as I was reading the book, actually, about how that multivocalism expresses itself. Um, let me try some, okay. something okay. on you. <laughs> Nobody would ever say somebody who's, who's a rugby fan can't be British. However, there are two very distinct kinds of rugby fans. In, in this country. There are people who follow rugby union and there are people who follow rugby league. And people who follow rugby league, we know, tend to, not exclusively, but they tend to come from the north. They tend to be, you know, more working class. Rugby union is, tends to be a public school game. Though not, you know, if you look at the England team, it's not composed entirely of public school boys. But the point is, both traditions exist side by side, and both are actually equally British. And I, I wondered when you were thinking about multivocalism, whether in a way that's a kind of metaphor that for some groups, 
actually what they will do is adopt some aspects of British life, but they will make a choice about how they interpret that and how they follow it, which is very particular. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. So they're choo- they're selecting from the menu. Yeah. And that's sort of what what this multi vocalism is about. It's it's the menu you you choose from the menu. I mean, the menu is not infinite, so uh, you know traditions from India are not on the menu, but things like chicken tikka would be on the menu because that was that's entirely here. British. Right, right, right. So so you would then. Select those things that are meaningful, and and so for example, I think a lot of our more ethnic minorities uh, will probably see Britain as more multicultural. Uh, not all, but some will will envision Britain that way. Uh, they might identify with institutions like the NHS, or uh, whereas a white Britain in you know, not anywhere, but really especially outside the major metropolitan areas will identify through their ancestry, through British history, through the landscape, through through the long shadows on cricket grounds and all of those things. And that's fine too. I, so so I'm against this idea that everybody must buy into the multicultural or or indeed the the ethno-national. I mean it's it allows these multiple uh, forms of, of Britishness to coexist without there being one official approved version. So I think that, I think it can accommodate the Muslim version of Britishness. It's fine, but of course, where you will have a conflict is is, is around these values. I mean, if there yeah. are, you know, whether it be women's rights or gays or whatever, that that where you have value conflict, you can't really massage those. The symbolic stuff, you can pick different items on the menu, but where there's clash over the values, but I think those, by and large, I think Muslims will be willing to. I could be wrong here, but but be willing to defer to the existing majority. And and so part of the, my my argument is, I mean, if you're really concerned about the threats to those values, people are free to do what they want. When they're in the country, they can live as they want. They can profess the values they want as long as they're not harming people. I'm okay with that. But there is obviously a demographic point that if it were to be the case that the demography would push towards say 50 percent, then you want to be. Um, the way to deal with that is is more through through the immigration system rather than through some kind of high pressure integration, which I think is not going to work. I agree. Uh, the, the, well, my last point right. is one of the things that um, I got from Louise Casey's report, which I've always agreed with, but I think we need to foreground more, is that in a way, reflecting what you've just said, we can't quite leave these things to chance and hope. There's no doubt a sort of battle that goes on within communities. I mean, I've seen it within communities I come from, about how you accommodate, how you develop your traditions and your identity so that it sits within Britain itself. I think that is more difficult for traditions that have a a set of kind of really strong articulated rules, and that's Mm. most clear amongst Muslims, though not exclusively about Muslims, but it's, it's clearest there. And the task, I suspect, for the rest of us is to try and find ways of making it easier for the people inside that community who want to find an accommodation, that we need to find ways of making it easier for them to move towards the shared values. Because actually, if we don't make it easier, then what happens is the people who say within those communities, actually, they never want to recognize us, they never want to accept us, and therefore we need to stick with the old ways and that will, that's what will protect us against, right. uh, against these you know, horrible, in this case, Islamophobes. 
So I don't quite know what I think the answers to that are, but I think an aim of policy has to be to try to ensure the risk, the victory, as it were, of those who want to be part of the shared public as opposed to those who basically want to say, you know, we're just, we're just here and we're going to occupy the space, but we're going to occupy it in our way and not have much to do with you guys. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair public policy aim. It's, it's just that you'd want this to be evidence-based and measured, sure. uh, you know, rather than ideological, that's all. That, that, that when in designing such policies, I sometimes have the feeling that people are, are not sufficiently grounding their... There are plans in, in, in studies and evidence. Um, so that's my only plea. More Kaufman, uh, more Kaufman yeah. studies. <laughs> okay. Right. Thank you very much for listening to the inaugural Conversation on Integration. If you want to discover more of what we do, visit us at integrationhub.net and sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media. See you next time.